it probably was the Cervelo from those years. I mean, they were just so advanced for right. their time, really. Yeah. You know, aero road bikes weren't really a massive thing mm. back then. I remember Mark Cavendish sort of saying to us, you know, it felt like it, we were cheating almost because the bike, because we had the zip wheels and mm-hmm. we had the Castelli sort of aero kit, which also wasn't really a big thing at the time. Um, so I think we probably did. We did have quite an advantage, I think. I mean, at, at the time. G'day legends and welcome back to the Press Room Podcast presented by Zwift. Episode 7 and this week we're talking with the Director of Racing and the man who's been with GCN since day dot, Dan Lloyd. Now when I first started watching cycling, uh, GCN was a big part of how I consumed the sport. Uh, They used to have a really cool weekly show um, and they also had really cool features on their YouTube channel like tours of the World Tour team buses or their kitchen trucks or meeting with the mechanics, reviewing bikes. I really liked that when I first started watching uh, cycling and now of course they brought on GCN Plus which is basically the go-to for racing coverage, watching live racing. It is unbelievable. And uh, I thought it'd be really cool to learn more about GCN with Dan. I mean, he's been there since the start. So uh, I thought we'd learn about GCN, how it grew, and then also hear some of the stories that Dan's collected along the way as a commentator, a pundit, uh, a journalist, and of course, a pro cyclist himself. And he's got some crackers because he really has been uh, in and around the sport so well. And I guess he's kind of the face of GCN, isn't he? Um, or at least that's how I feel from my perspective. So I'm sure everyone will learn and uh, and like this episode a lot. Um, and also, I have to say, big thanks to everyone that tuned into Maddie Richo's episode last week. I know there are a lot of new listeners out there now because of that episode. Uh, in fact, I actually broke the record for the peak download to the podcast on the second day that potty was out, so last Tuesday. So um, that was a really good uh, thing for the pod. So. Thank you to everyone who's new, who's tuned in. And if you haven't already, go back through the catalogue of episodes. There'll be another one you will like. And also, for you trackies out there, there is another Commonwealth Games gold medalist. Multiple medalists coming up very, very soon. But before we get stuck into the episode, big shout out to Zwift, the title sponsor. Couldn't be doing this without Zwift. They're just absolute legends. Beautiful platform for training. If you want to get some intervals in, you want to get some zone two, zone three riding in, you want to race, Zwift has it all. Uh, They've got the pace partner option as well. If you haven't had a go at the pace partners, they're pretty good if you just want a bit of mindless training. You know, if you just want easy zone one where you're not thinking about it, or maybe some threshold where you're just trying to take your mind off not focusing on the power, but you still want to do the power. The pace partners are really good. Like you go to the B or the C pace partners where they kind of hover between 3.2 and 3.4. They're getting really good now. They're trying to sort of make... Uh, the pace partners, the bots, really dynamic. So almost you've got like this kind of ghost to to sort of ride with. And I think they're really going to develop further. So um, definitely check out the pace partners. It's a great feature of Zwift. Okay, legends, it's time to get stuck to this episode. This is Dan Lloyd from GCN. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll see you on the other side. I'd love to chat to you about um, your journey after cycling um, because now you're really the face that we see on TV when we're watching uh, the coverage. Um, it's often yours that we're seeing, um, you know, presenting the, the cycling tour. So I guess why don't we start with after you finished up with pro cycling? Was that in, 
what year was that when you retired from from pro cycling? Uh, that was 2012. I think my Tour of Britain was my last race. So I spent a year with a team called Sigma Sports. Yeah. Uh, IG Sigma Sports, it was called in the UK, mm. which is also where, where um, Sarah Richardson and, La- and Tom Lars and Matt Stevens were that year. Yeah. Um, so, that, yeah, that was my last proper race. But that year was already a transitional year in, in, in that I was also commentating and doing some presenting on some YouTube videos back then. So... It, so it was quite nice it was sort of allowed me to look at other stuff and what i liked and what i was good at and what i wasn't good at and yeah and that led on to gcn from there effectively wow okay i didn't know si and um matt were on were they on the Sigma sports team as well that year yeah they'd been i think they'd been there for a few years so matt had been sort of rider manager uh-huh. for many years at that team like he's very good friends with the owner of that bike shop that sponsored the team mm. and i think that year he was just manager i don't think he was really racing anymore mm. um but yeah all four of us were on that team that year and then as years went on we all ended up at the same place afterwards at least for a time for some of us <laughs> yes i remember i'm pretty sure the stores isn't the store in zwift i'm sure it is it's in the yorkshire course or not yorkshire. well uh, well, it's in. It'll be on the London one because it's yeah. in a place called Kingston on Thames. I'm pretty sure. It well. is. <laughs> yeah, they've got. I mean, back then it was a smaller store, but they've got a really nice sort of flagship store there now that looks. You know, when you, you pull out drawers and there's Colnago frames and stuff, and that was you know, that was eight nine years ago. They had that store, so I'm sure it looks even better now. Yeah, they bling it out, don't they? They certainly do. Yeah, well, I guess so. You started. You started with GC in the following year. I wondered. How did you come about getting onto GCN? Was it was GCN a thing back then, 2013? Had it just started? Uh, I was actually doing. I, I did a pub quiz the other day uh, at a festival that we were doing, and one of the actually no, it was, it was a presenter challenge actually. But one of the questions was when did GCN uh, start? The first video I think was was late December 2012. Mm. But effectively, how I started with it was. That year I was telling you about in 2012, where I was getting to do bits apart from just riding a bike. The sponsor, one of the sponsors of Sigma Sports as a team was called IG Markets. And at the time, they also sponsored Team Sky. Mm. They were on the back of the shorts that year. Mm. And they wanted to activate their sponsorship in cycling a bit more. So they 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 decided to do preview videos of um the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France. And that's and to produce them, they employed a company called Shift, which is basically our parent company. Mm. And so through that, I met the boss of that, Simon Ware. And in that year, he he sort of got a contact at Google, the head of sports there, uh, through our chairman, and won the contracts to do the cycling channel. Because at that point in, in YouTube's life, it was already huge. There were millions and millions of videos uploaded every day. Yeah. But they're all random. You know, if you had a if you were really interested in a specific subject, it could be quite hard to find yeah. good quality content or certainly not regular good content. So they wanted to make what they called original content channels, which was I think 40 at the time, and they comedy, cooking, science, that sort of thing, a few different sports. And they funded them all for a year. Um and some of them lasted and some of them did well, and some of them fell by the wayside after a year. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's how I met met Simon and he asked me to be the first presenter. Um <laughs> I agreed and it's sort of gone from there, really. Yeah, that's so cool. I, that's when I around about the time where I started following cycling, and um maybe a lot of people that have 
that are onto GCN now and they might only know GCN for what it is now, but they they might not have known the originals when it had the show, the GCN show. I'm not sure that's still going, but um, and it was you, Cy, and Matt just on the panel, and that was the, yep. the weekly show. That's but still going. That's Normally still going. Me and Cy do that. Film it every Monday. Comes out every Tuesday. Um, yeah, I think we're coming up to the 500th show pretty soon, and, and obviously we're coming up to coming up to 10 years of, of GCN at the end of this year. But it's flown by, I must admit. That's perfect. Well, that's good timing for this podcast in 10 years. I should have checked that out. That's awesome. Yeah, well, what do you think made the like the GCN, particularly in those earlier years, those first two or three years, what do you think made it so successful? Was it was it the combination of, of the, the presenters? Like you three were really quite a good group, you know, and obviously you brought more on. But in those initial years, I just thought the chemistry of you three was terrific. Obviously, you were mates. Do you think that was a big part of it? I think I think the success of GCN is effectively just down to a lot of people working very hard that that were good at their jobs, particularly behind the scenes. Mm. Simon Ware, who's who's the CEO to this day, has just always been such an incredible driving force. Mm. You know, very motivating, very clear on where you know he wants to go with the company tends to make really good decisions that at the time you're sort of thinking I don't you know didn't seem he's also got a habit and, and I'm I'm sort of somebody that's quite intent wherever I am whether that's you know where I'm living what my job is or whatever it might be mm. and so I always get to these points where I'm like well I've, I feel like I'm comfortable here I know what I'm doing I can just <laughs> crack on he's already two or three steps ahead so he's like no we need to go to this now and then because other people will learn how to do what we're already doing so we need to keep going because otherwise we'll just get lost in the noise of everybody else um but yeah there were a lot of very clever people behind the scenes you know tom last in particular actually he doesn't present so much anymore but he's on the board of directors he's he's just a very very switched on lad i say lad you know he's in his early 30s now (laughs) that's still lad i mean he's worked in pretty much every department of our company and, and knows most of it inside out Wow. He's one of those people that he writes an email in such a way. Where you're like, I wish I could write an email that's got that amount of detail, but is also that concise. You know, yeah, I can yeah, never yeah. get around being able to do it. <laughs> but yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of clever people around for a long time that have always gone above and beyond. You know, it's it's mm. it's slightly different now because the company's at a size where you will always get people that come through the door and it, it's a job. They'll clock off at five or five thirty or whatever it might be, and they'll forget about it until the next day. But the core people from the start are still there, and and you know that if you call them or email them on a, on a Sunday night at nine o'clock, yeah, yeah they'll come back and answer something, and they'll sort it out. Um, so yeah, I, I think we were just we were just motivated in, in terms of the presenting. It was. Um, there, there was nothing really there wasn't really a comparison with anything before you know it was we were just we didn't have a, an audience to start with obviously we were just starting out so there were and there were no expectations of how good or what the chemistry should be like or whatever um and that was really fortunate for us because actually we were pretty crap presenters at the beginning well, yeah, I mean, but I think it's different, let's say, if if uh, if we were starting a channel now, you know, so many other channels that are really good out there. Mm. Um, it's also different if a new presenter comes in to GCN because there's a level of expectation or, or maybe love towards a, a presenter that might have just gone. Mm. And so they're, they're compared to that person and, you know, the, the natural 
instinct is to not like change and to not accept somebody new into the fold as an audience I think so I think it's harder for for people coming in now but for us it was just we we could kind of learn on the job really like what worked what didn't work you know how to go about things but you know we none of us really knew what we were doing in front of the scenes or behind the scenes at that point you know YouTube channels weren't really um something that you could make a career in back then necessarily so we had to figure out how you you could make a business that would make money in the long term etc so it's been it's just been a really interesting experience from start through to now and i'm sure it will be from here onwards as well yeah absolutely it's uh it's super interesting how many like you might know the exact number but how many people work for the gcn company now uh I don't know exactly. I think it's around about 200 across the whole lot. So, And it would have been a small, uh, much smaller team in the first couple of years? Yeah, I think when I, well, when I joined, it was, it, it was still just called Shift Active Media. And then once a little while after GCN started, or maybe before, I can't remember now, it was Play Sports uh, Network, which yeah. then became Play Sports Group and Shift was in, within that. Shift's mm. now a sort of separate company, um, mm. but we still sort of work with them. On, on quite a few things but yeah there were, there were 11 people I think when I started we were in this tiny little office on the outskirts of Bath and then we sort of outgrew that and moved into some we moved into these bigger offices that that we owned well, you know, that my boss owned yeah but we, there was there were there's four floors and we just had one and um oh. rented the rest out to other companies and then we we sort of gradually expanded in that building and, and took up all four floors. And then we had to rent another place out, which is where we do all the shows from now, actually. It's a two-minute walk away from the, oh, wow. the previous one. But we, so, yeah, we've still got we've still got that one at Monmouth Street and there's one in a place called Trim Street, which is where the um, the breakaway studio is. All of the other sets are there oh, as well. In the, middle, in the little sort of basement area. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Inza, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Move on from that very quickly if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I love the bins. I hope they're there. I hope no one ever takes them out. They part of the furniture, a staple. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it's like when you're playing Sims and you forget to take the bins out, and they're just kind of there, and it's part of the game. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, oh, that reminds me. Um, I want to know what I was really sad about in the middle years of sort of, um, I don't know when it was, maybe 2014, 2015, was when, um, when, when Matt left, Stevens left. And when he left the show, because I think it was to focus on his um, commentary, such a good commentator um, to listen to, one of my favourites. But was it like, was it sad when he left? Because you guys had a great, you know, trio with you in the main show at least. Yeah, I think I think we were all sad when he left. You know, he's the, the person that you hear or see on screen is is the person that Matt is. He's just he's um yeah he's a nice bloke to hang around with, and you have a good laugh all the time. He's he's one of those people that's almost never in a bad mood. Um, so yeah, it was it was a sad day when he left. It, you know, we, we all would have liked him to stay, I think, but um, you know, he you the the whole ethos of, of the company really was that it was all about you know building that up and, and 100% about working for GCN and anything you did around it. Mm-hmm. And Matt just enjoyed the commentary side of things and other bits and pieces. So in order to do that, he had to kind of leave and sort of forge his own path as a freelancer, which I think he probably enjoys more than being sort of fully employed. You know, it's not, it's not for everyone you know, in, in the same way that some people that are employed look at 
freelance thing. I wouldn't want that stress all the time of trying to find work every month and every True. year, etc. True. But I think it's worth. It's, he seems to be quite happy where he is, but yeah, it was certainly a sad day when he left. That's for sure. Hmm. Well, um, with your commentary yourself, you mentioned you started while you were still racing, which I think is really interesting. And I love commentary. Like I said, I'm really a big fan of Matt Stevens. Um, I love Robbie McEwen, Matthew Keane as well. I like yourself uh, as well. And I wanted to know what was your first commentary gig, like your first paid commentary gig, and who gave you that that chance? Because often it is like that with commentary. It's someone gives you a go and then you're in. Yeah, well, I um, I wasn't – well, I was sort of paid for this. This is quite a long story. But back in 2009, yeah, I'm still racing, um, my my wife and my only child at that point, had, they they were going to Nice for the start of the tour. I mean, a holiday for a week, but also it was when, when the tour started in Monaco, I think. And – I wasn't due to go with them because I was due to do the tour of Austria, which in the end I didn't do. So Lorraine's like, oh, you can come along with us. Like, yeah, great. Looked at flight costs and they were astronomical. It was about, it was like six, well, it was 600 quid. It was a lot for Europe and it was a lot of money for me at the time. And so I, my agent at the time was a guy called David Harmon, who was a, a commentator as well on cycling for Eurosport. So I gave him a call and said, you know, do you think, do, do you and Sean need an extra hand for the opening few days? And you know, nice to sort of come out and see see what it's all about on the other side of the fence, etc. And he was like, yeah, that'd be cool. So I, I said, I don't need pay and just get me there and, and back. And that's fine. You think I just basically want to get a flight out there that I don't have to pay for. <laughs> but they did that. I told this story to somebody the other day because I ended up at the airport and I just looked at the, the, the flight information screen and Nice, thirteen thirty gate, whatever. So I went there, and then I was queuing up to get on the flight. And everybody else had a different colour boarding pass to me, and I was like, "This is okay. weird." So I went to the front and said, "You know, is this like a combined Aer Lingus EasyJet flight?" And they were like, "No, this is just Aer Lingus. Your, your <laughs> flight's at the same time, but from and the, the flight had been delayed." And I was like, "Shit, I've, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> this really expensive flight. I'm just going to miss it." So I had to bolt it across the airport, oh. and thankfully because I had a bag on board and they didn't want to, you know, it's a real faff for them to take it off. They were just about to go in and take it off and shut the doors, but I just about got onto this flight. So that, I think that was my first experience of proper commentary. First paid one, I think, was um, the Walter Algarve, I think, in, oh. in, must have been in 2012, that year I was sort of doing a bit fewer other bits and pieces. Wow. But I remember the, the win across the line and I was with Carlton Kirby and, and I didn't know who it was and neither did he, so I just like, oh, God. <laughs> Uh, well, I sort of, it, it was, ja- I remember it was Janny Mearsman. Oh, really? He changed, he changed teams and I just didn't recognise him. In his, you know, like at the start of the year, getting used to riding oh, a different kit. Yeah. And I was just like, down the start list. I think, I think 30 seconds later, I was like, oh, that must be Janny Mearsman. But you, know, you <laughs> want to nail it on your first common, commentary gig. So, you um, do, yeah. yeah no, it went, went from there and obviously I was just mainly co-commentator for, for many years. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. So your first actual experience with commentating was at the Tour de France? I think so, yeah. And you almost... I so. I can't remember. I, I don't, my memory's not very good long-term. <laughs> and I, uh, I don't remember exactly how much I did, but I was, I was certainly in the commentary box with with David and Sean for a while, yeah. Wow. And then those, are, I don't know if it's different now, but I've seen, I've just seen from videos on the internet, but it's those commentary booth at a live on the ground at the tour and the stages, they're pretty small, right? Like, uh, they are. Like I mean, sometimes you're sort of at their own little 
booth in a in a van mm. the, the gantries at the finish line they're just they're actually quite big and all of the commentators sit in mm. in them but they'll be on a couple of levels yeah there might be four or five sets of commentators on the same level and you're just you've got like a just a plastic screen between you all um which you know it, it gives quite a nice atmosphere because in the background of the commentary when you're on site like that you can hear the other languages getting really excited about oh, something yeah. particularly if it's a French <laughs> and you've got French <laughs> next to you or the Italian yeah. next to you and it's Italian doing well um so yeah that's quite a large bit but at the moment we're just doing it from the yeah. UK the English speaking commentary mainly and then a lot of it's remote as well mm, okay it's pretty cool that you can you can commentate remotely now like that just seems yep. um yeah do you, do you do you even do you think it's important to be at the race from the commentator's perspective now uh you will get different views on this like my my view is that it's um it costs an enormous amount more money to be on site mm. you're always one step ahead of the race right so you once you're wrapped up and done you're not going to the start of the next day where all of the teams are, are based etc you're you're driving to the finish of the next day so you're, you're never really in that circus or you know around everyone within the race so there's only so much that you can pick up you get a lot from driving the course and just sort of seeing it firsthand as opposed to looking at maps and profiles or pictures, et cetera. Um, you know, particularly if they've barriered stuff and it's it's different to what the actual road looks like on Street View mm. or on Google Maps. So yeah, you'll you'll pick bits and pieces up, but it's just a trade-off between you know budget and how much it costs to do all of that. Yeah. Um versus what you get back and therefore what extra the audience will get from that as well. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess everyone had their own perspective. It, it kind of, when you were talking about riding the stage, you'll have to ask Robbie this because Robbie was here for, him and Keno were, were here in Perth, WA, for the Tour of Margaret River, which is a race we have in Southwest here, and they were doing some commentary. And they did a night before where they were just talking to everyone with a show. And Robbie was telling the story, and oh, I can't remember the specifics. Oh, no, it was Keenan. He was telling the story, and he said that, Robbie liked to ride the stages or the last 20k to the finale so we could, you know, of a sprint stage. You could get a real feel for it if he hadn't already raced in that finish before in his career. And I think the story was he ended up getting lost. And so he was out on Conago riding around. He got lost. And then I think he got a puncher and he didn't know how to get back. And he, he was due to start commentating. Um, the stage was starting, you know, in like an hour's time. So I think he flagged down someone in their car. <laughs> the car didn't fit the bike <laughs> and, and he, he got the guy to, he left his bike on the side of the fence or something he got the car back and he actually didn't get there in time Keenan had to start the commentary he says welcome back to stage 2 180 k's we're going from Nice to wherever and then Robbie's walked in as he was starting it put on the he walked in obviously Keenan looked at him it's like well you know kept going and then Robbie just put on his headset and they just carried on <laughs> and that was it i'm not sure what happened to the bike but that's kind of the gist of that story and it just makes me yeah i always think about it yeah. I, I, thought think. We gonna, I thought we were going to say it was bundled to the ground by some security people because you you know you, oh, you get that sometimes where you're not supposed to be on the course and they don't recognize who you are and oh, yeah. if you have accreditation on then they can be quite sort of you know as they need to be i guess they do general members they can't on on route but um well that happened yeah. to Froome once didn't it was it Froome or contador so yeah uh, uh, Froome. yeah Froome and way down yeah. at the center of the, one of the stages yeah. or something he had a he had like, 
that's it yeah it was cold and they put like an actual jacket as opposed to a cycling jacket on so he just looked like oh. any any old public yeah <laughs> yeah it's a weird one that isn't it that's one of those sports where yeah so close to the like yeah, yeah general public well, i mean this i was saying this to, to robbie myself the other day actually that the tour de france that i did in 2010 there was a stage i can never remember the name of the climb but it was a, it was a brutal day that went straight out the gate up this massive climb down over the tourmalade into, into, oh. i can't remember where it went to now yeah me and jez hunt my teammate thought well, we better warm up and it was before the days that you really had trainers at the start of a, of a road stage yeah, you just yeah. so we thought well we'll just go halfway up the first climb and get some get some warm-up in and then turn around and we just we were about to turn around and we looked ahead and we saw julian dean mm-hmm. from, from garmin yeah kiwi there and this policeman this gendarme just hurled himself at him and took him to the ground thinking that he was on the course <laughs> anyway it was getting at this point we were, were like well we'll just leave him to it because we've got to get back to the start now <laughs> so julian can look after himself which he could oh yeah, yeah. uh-huh yeah it's fine he made it to the start in time <laughs> that's so funny yeah, it's really interesting geez the last person you want to pull down or one of the last people Julian yeah Dean. exactly yeah. Lord. yeah hey guys hope you enjoyed the episode but Dan so far big shout out to the official apparel partner of the podcast that is Attacker if you're into your gravel cycling your bike packing overnight trips you need to get the quilted hooded jacket okay CR-ThePressRoom, all capitals. I've just spent three days on the Mundabitty Trail doing some overnighters, bringing all my gear on the bike, and this jacket, seriously, I mean, one of these days was nine hours, the next day was six hours, and three of the hours was in the rain, uh, and two of those three final hours was in the rain, pushing my mate whose uh, rear derailleur exploded, my other mate pushing me it was like a three-way train and all in the rain we were going through the mud we were going through like four degrees and this jacket was amazing it was so good it beads the water keeps you super warm but it's because you're going when you're going through sort of trails or at least on the Mundabiti, it's cold but then there's periods where it's really hot it's got the double zips you can zip up from the top get a bit of ventilation it really is a beautiful bit of kit Uh, i'm so impressed after fully testing it out and then when we got to our little uh, motel shout out to the manjimup motor inn uh, quite an establishment we put the aircon on full blast because the last two hours we've been in the pouring rain and just sort of hung the jacket on a on a light globe that was in front of the um, the aircon. With about you know twenty five minutes, it dried off. And then because it's like it's still got a casual feel to it, I chucked it on. We went to the Tall Timbers Manjimup Brewery for dinner, and um, I didn't look like you know a bit of a weirdo wearing cycling kit because it looks casual as well. I'm so stoked with this bit of kit. So if you like that sort of stuff. Um, I seriously, I employ you to go to the Attacker website and try it out because it's just, it's amazing and it just works. But anyway, I just, you know, that's what I got to say. It's so good. Um, I'm not just spruiking the kit because they're a part of the podcast. It really is a great bit of kit. Okay, back to the podcast legends. I hope you enjoy the rest of this one with Dan Lloyd and I'll see you soon. Well, uh, the the GCN Plus team, everyone that's listening to this podcast, most people have it, I would assume. Um, when people are messaging when we're watching the stages um, and they'll message me about it on the GCN app, so sick. The team that is together, especially for the Grand Tours, the team of 
obviously there's a huge team behind the production of course but in terms of the commentary team it's awesome you've got all of there you've got adam Blythe, who's really cool yourself we've got robbie um who i'm missing sean kelly as well yeah. it's such a good dynamic and i wondered you guys have so much fun or it looks like you have so much fun making like those dance videos at the start of the like the duo who's coming up with those ideas like say well, uh, well that that was definitely not my idea or robbie's idea as i think you can see from the uh, the degree of embarrassment etched across our faces most of the time that we're doing it but all is i think it was all his idea we've got a makeup artist called bell and they were like oh we should you know we should do something more than just a photo at the start of each day so yeah rob i think robbie and i sort of reluctantly went along with it for one day and then that seemed to go down well and so i think robbie and i were both thinking well yeah, let's just do it this once just to appease them and then at least it's out of the way and just put photos for the rest of the race and then it went down really well and so well with a, with a lot of people not not of everybody i hate to add um and so it just went from there really all of us sending us like this is the one we need to do tomorrow i wasn't <laughs> I, there was one evening where i did practice it and, and i just have no coordination at all i sort of knew what i needed to do from watching the video but that my hands my arms and legs just don't go in the direction that they, they're supposed to. Was that the in-betweeners dance? No, it was... It looked like you are doing it. Was day, I think it was the day after that. And yeah. uh, <laughs> and I was taking my young lad Jude up with me. So he replaced Robbie, which I think Robbie was very happy about the following day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was no idea. It's not for everybody. Like, you know, there's a lot of people saying you're just not taking the cycling seriously enough, etc. But then there were a lot you of people... Really, you can't please everyone, right? No, that's impossible. That's yeah. impossible. So, <laughs> with this, with the with the Grand Tour, um, or maybe even a uh, a big major one day uh, stage, uh, one day race, how much preparation for you and the other team is there with regards to saying calling stage? Like, how much are you doing research before you get on? Um, like, obviously, you've got a lot of knowledge already in the bank, but do you research? Um, you know, how much time are you spending on that before a stage? uh i guess i would spend a couple of hours i think you, you need to do more if you are the main commentator versus the co-commentator because you know there, there might be well be times when nothing at all is happening particularly in the stint that i do in the in the at the jury and the welter where I, I do the middle bit just to give rob hatch or carlton kirby for the for the welter a bit of a break because the coverage has lengthened right over the years where it used to be the last two hours it was easy to just take that with one person with a co-commentator alongside yeah whereas now it could be, you know four five even six hours and it, it's just too much really for mm. you not at your best at the end of that if you've been commentating all the way through that's true um, and so I, I you know i just put myself there in the middle and said just have a, a break and some lunch and get yourself ready for the end mm. um rob hatch i know does an awful lot of comment uh, of research over the winter you know when he's not actually you know, all of those people are freelancers they're not actually being paid to do that it, it's you know it's part of the job right you need yeah. to be prepared for it. but rob certainly goes above and beyond you know just already looking at stages of the year over the oh, winter and yeah yeah he's, he's amazing um, but all of them you know carton does a lot as well um yeah. sean kelly's always in like an hour before the call time you know when you're supposed to get in just looking at extra info buying buying the keep from a local place oh yeah bringing up, bringing up old colleagues or teammates that he knows are still still in the in the race at the races etc so he, he also puts a hell of a lot of, of effort in you and also just you can tell with with robbie and sean and a lot of the other commentators that we've got 
that they have been watching the races that they weren't commentating on which yeah. is also important because lots of stuff happens that mm -hmm. is relevant to mm. the race that you are commentating on mm. um but also i think it just shows that they that they love the sport you know they just they just enjoy watching it even if they're not being paid to but yeah it was a really good group everyone just got on really well on you know on camera on michael or away from them um which makes a big difference over the course of three weeks you know it's um yeah. If everyone's getting along well, then that three weeks goes past really quick and everybody's job is a lot easier than it, it might otherwise be. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's a, um, it must be really nice to have a break in between, say, the Giro and obviously got the, we've got the tours coming up, the Tour de Femmes as well. Yep. Um, is like this period now, time where you just, it's all with your family or do you do anything else to sort of switch off and, and, and you know? Uh... I normally sort of just have a week off after the Grand Tour, just um, because I'm employed. You, you know, when working weekdays, you get loo days, and you can just sort of take them back at the end of the at the end of the race. I want to get like a free week off, as Ooh. it were. I mean, I think I've earned it, but it, it's not <laughs> yeah. taking holiday time. You know what I mean, yeah. Um, but then I, I normally get straight back into work. I've just got there's a lot to do in my current role. You know, beyond what you see or hear. Yeah, well, um, what's you know, what's involved with that? Well, I schedule all of the English-speaking commentary for the cycling, and just there's a you know people sometimes can't do it at the last minute for whatever reason. You need to find somebody else to step in, mm. uh, and there's just so many races. You know, like last weekend oh, on Saturday, yeah. we had the <laughs> we had the Tour de Suisse, Tour of Belgium, Route d'Occitanie, um, Tour of Slovenia, Tour de Suisse Women's, mm -hmm. and the Hero Mountain Bike event. And oh, so there's, you know, there's just a lot going on, right, to organise about, you know, who's doing what, who's commentating on what. And I should most of it a long way in advance, but there's always stuff that needs changing or there might be a race that comes in at the last minute. Yeah. Um, plus, it's all the stuff on, on the GCN side of things. You know, still write and film the, the GCN show each week. There's a racing news show I do every Monday. There's a World yeah. Cycling show, GCN Plus, that we film. I mean, I don't write that, but I generally share presenting duties with Cy on that one um and just lots and lots of things in between as well so i'm always pretty busy wow. um so yeah I, I would uh i would i never i very rarely schedule myself to do lead comment lead commentary for an entire race you know just me for example because i know that i don't really have the time to that you need to put aside to research everything fully and know the local area and the buildings and everything else mm. Uh, but I, I really enjoy commentating, so I'm quite happy to do, to do that middle stint and sort of keep the flow going through there and hand back over to the the expert at the end. Yeah, okay, well, that's interesting. I, I don't think many people would know about, um, I guess, yeah, your your major role outside of the actual calling in director of racing. That's your title, isn't it, GCN? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Sounds, sounds director of racing. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about this? Um, your, your your a couple of favourite moments. That's what I want to ask you. Okay, um, do you have a favourite moment when you were riding? Favourite moment of your career? One that just stems to, that comes to your mind first. Uh, Tour of Flanders, two thousand and nine. Two thousand nine. So, so, uh, is that Christoph? No. Uh, it would have been Devolder. Second time in a row. On here. But um, 
you know, that that was my first year in a big team. I'd been sort of bumbling about with smaller teams, sort of trying to make it for years and years. Yeah, I think if I if it was if it was me now looking at me at the age of 25, I'd have I'd have just said, look, just you, you've tried your best, just knock it on the head because time's running out, not running out, but you know, you're gonna have to do something else at the end of this to earn money. Yeah. There was always something in me every year that a race or a couple of races against some fairly big names where I'd say, actually, I think on my day I can sort of be there and compete. Yeah. Um, and that just kept, I just kept going. Finally, I got this opportunity in, in 2009 through Brian Smith, actually, who helped um, set up the Savelle Company. Uh-huh. And so I was just, you know, I was pinching myself from that moment. The very first get together we had, I roomed with Carlos Sastre, who, had won the tour like five months before that and I just couldn't believe it you know that I was just oh, also I'd, I'd arrived at the hotel and didn't know who I was rooming with and when I got in there I hadn't had lunch and they left us a couple of nice boxes of Swiss chocolate on the bed so I'd been tucking into mine because I was so hungry and then I then I found out that I was rooming with Sastre and I was like oh god oh, you know, no. what, what's he gonna, gonna think you know I've just been eating loads of chocolate so I, I went back up to the room yeah and I finished the rest of my chocolates and I've put them in a bin in the corridor somewhere. And then I took the box from his bed and I put it on the on the desk oh. so that it looked like we just had, like, just had one between us. <laughs> and at, and at, at the end of that trip, he was, he was such a nice bloke, Carlos. I got a, a video message from him the other day because my mate had bumped into him. And uh, at the end of the at the end of the get together, he said, um, he said, Lloydie, just, you know, you take those Swiss chocolates home for your wife. You know, I don't I don't need them. So I, I got the second box <laughs> and I went home to my wife and I said, look, what I bought you from Switzerland. <laughs> oh, that's gold, mate. That's gold. Um, but anyway, yeah. Tour, so anyway, the, the whole of that year was was me pinching myself. And I can't believe I'm teammates with these people. I can't believe I'm finally doing these races. And it was particularly the case for, for the Tour of Flanders because I just I'd always loved watching those cobbled classics and just the the drama and uh but the endurance spectacle as well you know just i remember going out for rides of four hours and think i'm pretty tired like that was a decent ride and then knowing that i'd started about the same time they'd started but they still had three hours of racing left to go it was really hard to get your head around it as a as a youngster mm. um but, but the atmosphere it started in bruges at the time the app you were like there's one square there where they have all the buses and then there's another square that you ride to where they they have this massive um platform where the rides go up and they're interviewed and, and, oh, yeah. and announced the crowd um yeah i just couldn't i couldn't believe i was there really but then i had i ended up having a really good race yeah where i was right it was a, it was the old course so the huh? the koppenberg paterberg weren't quite as crucial as they are now but they were still you know because they were placed fair. earlier yeah it was i think it was still like 100 k to go i mean 90 i'm not sure but i remember going I was at the front for both. I was going up the Paterberg behind like Puzzato and, and oh, Bonin in about fifth place thinking, I'm just, again, just can't believe wow. this. And yeah. Down the other side, my teammate Andreas Clear said, if you can attack now, it's a great place to go. And it's actually where Dylan Van Baal goes every year. So between the Paterberg and the Koppenberg, yeah. it's, a, it's a point where it's long enough that groups start coming back together everyone starts looking at each other and and you often go there and nobody follows you and and so that's why andre said it because he was he, he knew full well that he knows everything yeah it'd be a bit of a lull we'd have somebody up the road so i went for it and sylvan chavanel came with me and life hoster and manuel quinziato so then i'm at the front of the race at the koppenberg what on when by the, which point tv had started because it wasn't live from start to finish perfect okay, yeah just 
goosebumps. I think I got like over the next couple of climbs, I got over the Berendries and then the sort of lights went out and I, and I'd been dropped before the Valkenberg. Uh, and, um, and I remember, I remember Devolder just flying past me with Bone and then Pizzato on his wheel. And I was, yeah, just, I was just, I was basically a spectator at that point that happened to yeah. be riding this, the same race, but yeah, it was just a brilliant experience. I think Heino got second and Tor was up there as well. Um, oh, Tor. Amazing. But yeah, I've got very fond memories from that day. That's that's a great story. That's um, yeah, that is totally in the race. Definitely attacking over the top of the climbs, Chavanel. Wow, did you yeah. keep anything from that race? I'm sure I have somewhere. Yeah, it's one of those things like you end up with stuff in a loft, and the only time you ever look at it is when you're moving house. It just slows you down because you're sort of <laughs> like, oh, I've been this for years. So yeah. moved house, and then yeah. you spend hours looking at it because you, you're tired from the rest of the stuff you've been packing up. Um, <laughs> so I think it's back in a lot now, but I'm sure I must have something from it. I don't know what I've got, but I've got something. Okay. okay. Well, that leads me to the next question. What was your, what was your favourite bike that you rode in when you were a pro cyclist? Do you have a favourite? Not necessarily the best, just the one you like the most. Um, yeah, but probably was the Cervelo from those years. I mean, they were just so advanced for right. their time, really. In yeah. you know, era, road bikes weren't really a massive thing mm. back then. I remember Mark Cavendish sort of saying to us, you know, it felt like it, we were cheating almost because the bike, because we had the zip wheels and mm-hmm. we had the Castelli sort of aero kit, which also wasn't really a big thing at the time. Um, so I think we probably did we did have quite an advantage i think i mean at the time there wasn't really a lot of there was data but it wasn't sort of easily accessible if you know what i mean like if you knew where to look you, you could find it but certainly a lot of the teams weren't really looking into it that sort of thing of yeah no a lot of you know pros at that point were really hard to convince so if zip came over and gave a talk or Cervelo or or damon reinard that was like our aerodynamicist you know that you, unless what unless the the big rider said yeah we're in then the others would be very hard to convince as well it was it was yeah, i think it was a hard job for those companies back then to convince pros because pros just they go on feel and it might feel faster but it doesn't mean it is you know it's like it's like pumping your tires up to 130 psi or whatever it feels faster because you can feel every little bump in the road it's like it's like being in a go-kart at 40 miles an hour feels faster than being in a Range Rover at 60 miles an hour because mm. of the comfort. And so a lot of it was just done on, on feel back then and also on what Eddie Merckx had used, you know, in oh, the yeah. 60s or whatever. So it's only fairly recently that all of the pros are now fully bought into yes. everything. You know, it's training and position. In, in that era, only you know, 12, 13 years ago, it was very hard to convince people that this was going to be faster mm. than this. They just go with what they knew, what they felt comfortable on. Yeah, and there's a lot to be said for that as well. But you know, Carlos would always have two O twos on his bike because he just he yeah. preferred the way he felt on descents. You know, that he was more confident with them, etc. Um, but yeah, it was it was just a it was a beautiful bike to ride. Really, I think it was just um, and it was it was fast as well. But you, you can't yeah. feel that it's faster. You just have to believe. Well, yeah, that's what that's what we all do. That is very interesting, um, and what a contrast to to the to today. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it changed very quickly. Yeah. What about uh, what? Do you have a favourite moment as a commentator? Maybe one where you've been commentating a certain moment in a race, or one that comes to mind. 
nothing immediately springs to mind. I mean, I wasn't actually. Co- I mean, it's sort of stupid answer because I wasn't actually commentating, but I was. I was sort of around. Yeah. It, in our building at that point, but you know that stage twenty of the tour in twenty twenty when when Pogacar's oh, the when, that, when that race when that graphic of the time difference between him and Roglic, I was just like, oh my god! I remember you know Brad Brad was in the booth and he came running out like, I can't believe it! I was like, go back in, this is history. You got to have your say on you know what's happening yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean that was just that was just unbelievable. What what you know nobody could have predicted that and to see. To have the split screen, I think that made it. You know, the split screen. Yeah, that point, that point where it went from red to green. And you're yeah. like, oh my god! Now virtual. Yeah, lead, it's just know, ticking up. Can't, can't believe it. I mean, that was a mm. that was a big moment. Um, but then I still, you know, to this day, I still just really have a passion for the for the Cobble Classics. You know, Flanders and Roubaix. I just I love those races. Yeah. But I can't I can't think of a specific commentary moment that I can okay. pick out and say that was. That was the best bit. Okay, and as a in your role now uh, at GCN, do you have a favourite bike currently that you like? Just like the look of, not what you ride. Uh, it would it would have to be the look of because I don't really ride my bike anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I learned after what what I learned through being with GCN and having access to multiple bikes from different brands over the years, you know, often, often having three bikes at the same time mm-hmm. is it was just the one that you liked most was just the one that, that fitted you the best, really. I mean, I didn't need to have the aerodynamics or lightweight, you know, in general, it's been, they've always given us their best bikes because that's always what they seem to want to yeah. be seen. Um, and for, it was the all bears have always really fitted me very well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. But I like them, but yeah, I I just I haven't ridden my bike in quite a long time now. Um, but what about looks, like, Dan? What's so that, not, not your personal bike, but what about in the pro peloton? Say for oh, um, which one do you like to look at the most? I, I, st- I still like the canyons, I think. I, like, I mean, Matthew Vanderpool's got a new one that's sort of bespoke designed to him. I think they always just look really clean and smart. I've done for many, many years. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. I, I still quite like the Savelle, you know, like when you see Roglic or Van Aert with the sort of stem at the front that it just oh, all, again... It's a so, polarising oh, thing. That, um, is it? Yeah. You know, but yeah, I love those was, that's the thing now is that, that there's not really a bad bike out there anymore back in the day you, you'd get lots of riders who just who had a different manufacturer's frame with this, those stickers taken off and their sponsor stickers put on and, and again you know thinking back i remember the talk from gerard vrooman when with Savelli, it was like you're you're all going to be riding on something that the public can buy from a shop you know and that at that time that was that was quite rare, you know, because the big riders would have bespoke measurements, like slightly, maybe a longer top tube than standard or shallower head tube or whatever it might be. But he's like, no, our, our bikes can fit any of you and we want you to be on bikes that the public can buy because you know, we're a bike we're a bike brand, we're sponsoring a team. Yeah. Um, so, again, that's changed a lot over the years. But you, like, like I said, there's just not really any bad bikes out there anymore i mean there's, there's differences particularly in time trial bikes between the best and the worst but in yeah. terms of road bikes 
in I wouldn't say there's many teams or rides that are a hindrance because of the equipment they're on necessarily. Certainly not from a frame and forks point of view. I wouldn't say. No, no. Okay, no. Fair enough. Yeah, the uh, I have to agree. The, the canyons are pretty nice. Um, definitely. Well, um, Dan, and actually, when I was um, I've just got this thing written down here. When I was just doing a little bit of research, um, well, I didn't have to do too much. Um, I on Wikipedia it says you were the first rider to ever use an onboard camera at the 2009 Giro. Oh, yeah. yeah, I think so. So it I was mean, always not, in your, not, like, tea leaves to broadcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, not enti- I'm not entirely sure if there was anyone before me. I don't, I don't think so. I was told at the time that I was yeah. the first person to have an onboard camera. But it was, I mean, it was like a brick must to have start been. with. So yeah, it must have weighed a ton. It was, it was 7.20. Yeah, so I, I had a whole whatever 180 kilometers of riders doing that or waving <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, they still do of. that. They still do. I'm sure they still yeah. do it. What usual immature stuff that a bunch of blokes do when they get together in their 20s. <laughs> and then, but it turned out that the, in the neutral zone, they've been sort of not cobbles, but like a, you know, one of those typical Italian city clinkers they call them in the, in the Netherlands, just, just yeah. bricks. Yeah. And then in that neutral zone, the vibration had pulled the camera out of focus so there was no usable footage whatsoever from yeah. from any of it <laughs> well still it's a good stat to have i like that uh well um dan we'll talk in a second um uh, but uh that's all i've got so thank you so much for coming on the podcast um the press room pod and it's good to learn a little bit more about you we all see on the screens so we'll learn a bit more about your history and then and, and and also about gcm which is really interesting my pleasure cheers jeffrey Legends, that's another episode of the Press Room Podcast done and dusted. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Dan Lloyd, for coming on the podcast as well. It was super, super cool to chat with him, someone who I've been watching and sort of idolizing for a long time. So it was really cool to have him on the podcast. And I hope everyone that listened got uh, something out of it and found it really entertaining. Now, speaking of entertaining, one of my favorite pro cyclists is on the podcast next week. Now, I won't give any hints away, okay, but on Friday, I'm going to send another post out on the Instagram, which is at The Press Room Podcast, and we're going to be getting questions from this guest for the podcast that night, okay? So stay tuned. Make sure you're following the podcast uh, Instagram page, okay? Little hint. Um, Well, she was cleaning up the Commonwealth Games. I'll just put it that way. Okay, legends, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week with an absolute banger of a guest. 